Okay, well, first, thank you for coming to the UA Campus Bookstore for um, our special event. Uh, before we get going, just a word about parking, that um, we do have free parking in the bookstore parking lot. It's called the South Lot in front of the bookstore and the parking lot behind Rasmussen Hall, so you do not have to pay for parking. So um, remember next time for all bookstore events, we offer free parking in these parking lots. Okay. Um, we have some water. If you're a little thirsty, you're welcome to take some water. We will have some um, samples of um, some wonderful food later in the presentation. Um, so our event today um, welcomes Delisa Renadio. Renadio? Renadio. Renadio, excuse me, um, who is going to discuss the Barefoot Gardener in the Kitchen Cookbook, which is at our table here. Um, you're welcome to take a look at it. And um, if you'd like to purchase it, um, you can just do so before you exit the bookstore. The uh, cashier station is just downstairs to the right of the exit. So um, at this event, uh, Delisa discusses her new cookbook and demonstrates how to prepare delicious plant-based recipes. The uh, Barefoot Gardener in the Kitchen Cookbook contains 132 plant-based recipes for people who want to be slim and healthy and who love to eat. With color photographs, the cookbook highlights the use of whole plant foods that support optimal health and vitality. Delisa is a former RN. Uh, she holds a certificate in plant-based nutrition from Cornell University and is a certified life coach skilled in using EFT, emotional freedom technique. In addition, she has been an important contributor to the Food for Life course for diabetes prevention and reversal. Delisa lives near Wasilla, Alaska, is an avid organic gardener, and feels more at home with her hands in the dirt than almost anywhere else. So uh, this event is being recorded. It'll be on um, iTunes and the UA Campus Bookstore Collection um, later tomorrow afternoon, so you can tell your friends who couldn't make it to listen to it. So Delisa, thank you so much. Um, I hope you say some more about yourself, and I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us. It's sure. wonderful. Do you want to hold this, or you can walk Yeah, I'll hold it. Great. Uh, do you need me to use the mic? I'm happy to, but I... My voice carries well enough. I don't know if you can hear. Can you hear? Oh, if anybody wants me to hold it, I'm happy to do it. But if, if this is good, I'll just talk. It's good. Oh, okay. Okay. So we can just... I can just this up. There you go. All right. I'll tell you a little bit about myself as, we, as I go through the presentation. But I really am very happy that you're here on this beautiful sunny day. As an Alaskan enjoying September... It's like every day like this is a gift. I did grow up in Alaska, and I moved in to other places, and I returned back like many smart people. <laughs> and so anyway, I won't have time to hear all of your stories, but we're all here today. So I'm going to uh, talk a little bit, not just about my book, um, but what my book does is ties into the reasons why I wrote this book and not some other book. And so it's really all about uh, becoming slim and healthy with the food we eat. And our culture, as you know, is a far cry in general from slim and healthy. So we're going to talk about that today. So the, the theme of this whole thing is it's, it's about the food, okay? Um, a lot of people, everybody wants to have good health, but we don't all necessarily know how to do it. And so we, we think, well, we need to have good genes and good doctors and good
good medical insurance and maybe some good luck to throw in. But we often don't realize that it's not those things. It's really something else. And that's the good news, which is that we have much more power to create good health than we realize. The truth is we are designed to be slim and healthy. You know, we're not just some accidental mistakes. We were designed to be slim and healthy. <laughs> but that is not the case with the majority of people. So then the question is, what happened? We often think that, that there's a big problem, but if we look at our design, we have self-regulating systems. You know, our temperature self-regulating, our, our apostat is self-regulating, our blood pressure is self-regulating. Our body's taking care of all these things without us having to think about it. And then when something does go wrong, our body knows how to heal itself. I mean, if you think of all the, the bruises and bumps and cuts that you've had, and where are they now? They healed. Whether the Band-Aid didn't heal you, the doctors didn't heal you, your body heals itself, which is really kind of amazing. I don't have any other thing in my life that heals itself. I have a Vitamix right now at home that I wish it would heal itself because I need to buy a new one. But it's not going to heal itself, you know. And We have a roof. It doesn't heal itself. Charlie has to crawl up on the roof in the next couple of days and work on the roof. But our body is amazing. It heals itself. So let me tell you a little bit about my story and how I got to be here. This is me in the kayak and my little dog Heidi. And I'm in great health now. And I'm 67 years old. And I just appreciate how good my life is because it wasn't always like this. In my 20s, I was really um, very, very sick. When I was 20 years, uh, I was okay until I was about 20 years old. And then one morning I woke up, I was actually on a fishing boat in southeast Alaska. I woke up with this blinding pain in one eye so badly I couldn't tolerate any light. I had a towel over my head. I had to fly, charter a flight off the boat to Sitka and then try to get from Sitka to Anchorage when the weather was all locked in. And um, when I got to the eye doctor, he, he looked at my eye and said, well, you have a forest fire raging in your eye and we're going to do our best to put out the fire, but no promises. And it had a name. It's called iritis, which is just an inflammation of the eye. And we said, we don't know what causes it. We don't have a cure for it. It's not an infection, so antibiotics won't help. So all they could do is give me powerful steroid drugs. And I had drops, and I had pills, and all of this. And he says, we just hope we can put the fire out. And he said, you should have gotten here sooner. It's like, well, you know, I got here as fast as I could. It wasn't that easy to get here. So anyway, then he said... But even if we get it, the fire put out this time, he said, it's a chronic problem and it's going to come back over and over and you will eventually probably be blind. <gasps> and it's like, so I think you should use the microphone. Okay, oh. I'll use the microphone. That way when I turn over. Oh. Okay. Um, on the side. Okay. That's better. So if I turn away from you, you can still hear me. Okay, so with that shocking news, 
I went home and immediately began looking around me and memorizing what the mountains looked like and everything else because I thought, how much longer will I see them? Well, the good news was that the, the steroid drugs, which were a little scary on their own, you know, they have a lot of side effects, they did clear it up that first time. And I went back to college that fall, and, but I was living with fear every day. When is it going to come back? When is it going to come back? So then about a year later, I woke up one morning. The problem is getting up in the morning. That's the thing. Don't do that. So one morning I woke up, and I had this terrible pain in my hip, and I could barely walk. So I go to the doctor, and he says, well, we don't know what's causing it. You have some kind of arthritis, and all we, can, we don't know what causes it. We don't have a cure for it, but here's some drugs to try to help you. And the problem with these drugs was that they, um, they've since been taken off the market, but I had to go in for a blood test every six weeks because they said it can, you know, can hurt your blood, can hurt your liver. So it's like, well, I don't want to do that. So I avoided taking them as much as, as much as I could avoid it. And in between, I would just take massive doses of aspirin, like four at a time maybe 24 aspirins a day. You can imagine how that affected me. I had ringing in my ears. My stomach got to be, you know, looking at an aspirin literally made my stomach hurt. So the arthritis kind of came and went. There were days that I wasn't in pain, and there were days I was in so much pain I literally couldn't get out of, oh, I couldn't get out of bed without help. Um, and here I was, you know, still in my early 20s. And so then, um, I did graduate from college, and I was teaching school in Valdez, and I started having, not too surprisingly, a lot of stomach pain, to the point where I would have to go home in the middle of the day many days. And then I started having bloody, mucusy stools. And it's like, you know, what is going on with me? And so I was living in Valdez, not the easiest place to go to a doctor in those days. It was in the 70s. So I had to get a flight out and... Um, got scoped from both ends, and they said, you have gastritis and ulcerative colitis. So more steroids and more drugs. And so shortly after that, I had my 26th birthday, and that was like the lowest point of my life because at this stage I thought, what do I have to look forward to? Being blind, crippled, and in pain for the rest of my life? It's like, this is just not what I want. And nothing is really helping because this inflammation is just spreading more and more through my body, you know. So I just said, the doctors can't help me. And for a while I was just like super depressed. And then I just kind of had a, an insight one day, said, well, if I'm going to get better, I'm going to have to help myself. Now, I had no clue how to help myself. But I decided, well, the first thing I can do is try to do better with my food. And at that point, I was a typical young woman trying to be slim all the time and doing some crazy diets. So I knew that, okay, well, I know that these crazy diets that I'm doing is not helping, so I'm just going to try to eat for health. And my body will just have to be whatever size it is, and I'll live with it. Because at that point, I recognize, now, not everybody in their 20s recognizes the value of their health, but I recognize it at that point, as you can imagine. So that was my commitment then, and it's my commitment now, is to eat for health. And the lucky part is, it tastes great, but that wasn't my concern at that point. My concern was, could I get my health back? 
So I began reading and studying and, and just exploring everything I could about nutrition at that time. And I, when I was 30, oh, I did begin to actually get better um, a little at a time. But when I was 30, I read Diet for a Small Planet by Francis Moore LePay. Has anybody read that? It's a great book, isn't it? And at that point, um, I realized the value of eating a plant-based diet. And so I became vegetarian, but I still ate a lot of dairy products and eggs. And um, so I, I was vegetarian for about 10 years, and then I read another book called Diet for a New America by John Robbins. Has anybody read that book? Wow, good for you. We're on the same path here. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, that was about... 28, 29 years ago, and at that point, I began to understand all the other reasons to um, to not eat dairy products and eggs as well as, as meat and fish. So I became vegan at that point, and so that was about eight, 28 or 29 years ago, something I kind of forget, sort of blends together after a few years. So that really... That was such a life-changing thing for me, and my health had just gotten better and better and better. Every time I improved my diet, my health improved. And I did have some more episodes with my eyes, and I did have, and ended up having more treatments, which caused a detached retina, which caused more surgery, which has caused some permanent uh, damage to my left eye, but I can see out of both eyes. And I do not live in fear anymore. And I walk all the time, as much as I can, without pain. And I don't have gastritis, and I don't have ulcerative colitis. I am very healthy, and I'm not on any medications. And I appreciate it so much that I really want to help others to have that experience. Because I know how hopeless you can feel when it just seems like your body's falling apart and you just have nothing that, no way to do anything about it. Whoops, that was the wrong thing. So, as I became committed to helping others, I've done a lot of different things. One thing that I did, it was sort of a detour, uh, was I was an RN for a while. That was definitely a detour because I wasn't helping people to be healthier. All I was, in, in my job, I was working in a hospital, I was just helping sick people be more comfortable. And that wasn't my goal. So I really wanted to help people stay out of the hospital. So, um, oh, there I go again. I have a clicker that I use in my classes, and the button on the bottom advances it. This one turns it off. So uh, in 2009, I earned a certificate in plant-based nutrition from Cornell University, the T. Colin Campbell Foundation, and that's a very wonderful, comprehensive program. And I also began teaching nutrition and cooking classes in 2006 through the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. I was teaching food for life classes for um, cancer prevention and reversal and then diabetes prevention and reversal. And I'm still teaching nutrition and cooking classes um, through my own business, which is called the Yes to Life Solution. And, um, and then a year ago, I also um, wrote this cookbook, The Barefoot Gardener in the Kitchen Cookbook. And I have to tell you, that was not my life's goal to write a cookbook. I had a lot of students telling me for years, asking me, when are you going to write a cookbook? When are you going to... Never. I'm never going to write a cookbook. 
because, you know, I just kind of throw things together at my house and taste them and then add a little of this and a little of that, and it's like, oh, cookbooks, you know. I mean, even though I have a lot of cookbooks, I use them for ideas and then I make up stuff. So anyway, finally, and this, the longer version of this is in the forward of my cookbook if you want to hear more about it. But I finally got my arm twisted enough that I wrote the cookbook last year. And I'm very glad I did because I probably use it more than anybody else. It just lives on my counter and now I don't have to just like, well, I hope this is as good as last time. It's like I can just turn to a page and I know it's going to be good. Now the thing is, my cookbook, and then there's a lot of vegan cookbooks now. Vegan just means it doesn't have any animal products. But there's a lot of not very healthy vegan cookbooks out there and that have a lot of, you know, un unhealthy things. High fat, high sugar, white flour, that kind of thing. And I don't eat that way and so I don't teach that way and I don't have that in my cookbook. So, now let's move on ahead. Now you know how I got to where I am. For most of human history, the diseases that killed us are very rare today. So these were things like pneumonia, TB, diarrheal diseases. These were the things that were killing people at the turn of the last century. And how many of you know anybody that's died of any of these now? I mean, just very rare. So nowadays, the top causes of death are lifestyle diseases. And when we even use the term lifestyle disease, is lifestyle a disease? Well, it is the way we live. <laughs> so heart disease, cancer, diabetes, chronic lung diseases like uh, emphysema, COPD, stroke, Alzheimer's, those are the top six causes of death in our culture, and they're all lifestyle related. Uh, okay, by the end of this, I may have learned a new habit. <laughs> in most cases, all of these lifestyle diseases can be prevented or arrested and often even reversed by making healthy lifestyle changes, especially food. Now, food isn't the only important part. There's exercise, there's sleep, there's stress management, there's good social connections. Those are all important. But without having the food right, all those other things can't correct for the food. So let's just cover a little bit of ground of what the situation is now. According to the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, heart disease is still the leading cause of death. Cancer is the second leading cause of death. And this is a pretty shocking thing. One out of two men and one out of three women will get cancer in their lifetime. So we can look around. One out of two men, one out of three women. My father died of cancer. My older sister died of cancer. Now, not everybody who gets cancer dies from it, but those are frightening statistics. Diabetes is becoming a diet, not only a, an epidemic, but a pandemic, meaning that it's spreading all around the world because as our lifestyle gets exported to third world countries, now they can be just as sick as we are. Diabetes has more than tripled in the last 30 years. If that was totally genetic, would that be possible? Evolution doesn't happen that fast. 44% of American adults and 77% of adults over 65 have either diabetes or prediabetes. 
That's a shocking thing. How many of you know somebody who has diabetes? Yeah. Okay. And the older we get, the more likely it is that we're going to have it. That doesn't mean that we need to. It just means that the, the longer we have unhealthy lifestyles, the more likely we are to get sick. Old age isn't a disease, is not a disease, but it is an accumulation of effects from the choices that we have made when we're younger. And the earlier we make changes in our life, the better. But I've had people in my classes that were even in their 80s that were able to reverse disease. So we have amazing bodies. So I'm going to show you a series of slides here. It's going to move fast. And this is the prevalence of diagnosed diabetes between 94 and 2013. And you're going to see the map is going to change colors depending on, you know, as, as it increases. Isn't that shocking? Seeing it, how it changes so quickly year by year by year is just unbelievable. So according to the CDC, 69%, actually I need to update that. Last I heard is, I think it's 71% now, of adults are obese or overweight. And this is based on BMI. So a BMI over 25 is overweight, and a BMI over 30 is obese. And the BMI body mass index is based on, you know, looking at your height and your weight together. So we're going to look at the maps here again. This is 94 to 2010. And of course, we're in 2018. It has not reversed. You can believe that. Okay. So it's just, you know, it's really a kind of a horrifying thing. We, we watch the news and we see a hurricane, you know, approaching the East Coast again. And we, and we recognize that, you know, tsunamis and hurricanes and all these things are wiping out people. What we may not realize is that we have this tsunami that is going through our culture based on our unhealthy lifestyles that is leading to very much unnecessary suffering and death. Now, this is just people who are obese, not um, overweight. So over 30 BMI. 35% of adults, 18% of children, and 12% of preschool children are obese. We're not talking just pudgy here. Shocking. So what is causing this disastrous collapse of our human health when we were designed to be slim and healthy? <laughs> it's the food. Surprise. Okay, so let's look at some, some words of wisdom here. Albert Einstein says, Nothing will benefit human health and increase chances of survival of life on Earth as much as the evolution to a vegetarian diet. Now, you know, he's known for other things, but he obviously was a very smart man. Is he a vegetarian? I guess. I don't know. 
Uh, he said that, so I hope he was. <laughs> and the Kaiser Permanente, you know what Kaiser is? It's the largest managed care, health care um, organization in the country. And in their uh, journal in 2013, it came out with these statements. Healthy eating is best achieved with a plant-based diet, which we define as a regimen that encourages whole plant-based foods and discourages meats, dairy products, eggs, as well as all refined and processed foods. That's a pretty clear statement. And so Kaiser Permanente is telling their doctors that they need to be um, telling their patients that. They say... It goes on to say, too often physicians ignore the potential benefits of good nutrition and quickly prescribe medications instead of giving patients a chance to correct their disease through healthy eating and active living. Physicians should consider recommending a plant-based diet to all their patients, especially those with high blood pressure, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, or obesity. I wish they would say, and all those people who don't want to have those things. Why wait until they're diagnosed with that before they make changes. So, what are Americans eating now? The recommendation is to eat whole plant foods and avoid animal products and processed foods. Let's see what we're eating now. This is again according to USDA estimates in 2014. The blue is 50% is refined and processed foods. 32% is animal products and only 11% is fruits, vegetables, beans, whole grains, nuts, and seeds. And according to Kaiser, all of what we eat should be that part. So we really have a big problem. No wonder we're not healthy. When the diet is wrong, medicine is of no use. When the diet is correct, medicine is of no need an Ayurvedic proverb. So one thing that's really encouraging is that when we eat healthfully, it benefits every single part of our, our body. It goes to our brain, it goes to our heart, it goes to our muscles, our lungs. And there's all of our organs benefit. And there's only good side effects. So the healthy food is treating the underlying cause. It's helping our immune system to get better. It's helping our, our weight to get better. So we don't need a different diet to prevent cancer or for diabetes or for heart disease or even Alzheimer's. It's the same healthy food. Now, this is something that we're not used to in our culture because we usually compartmentalize everything. And somebody says, oh, I can't eat this because I have diabetes. And somebody else says, well, you know, I don't need to eat that way because I don't have diabetes. And somebody else says, well, I don't want to get cancer. And I read this thing about, you know, I should eat this way for cancer or heart disease, whatever. But it's the same healthy food. So that simplifies things. You don't have to have different diets for different things. Your body knows what to do with it. So let's take a look at some of the evidence. For heart disease, diet and exercise are both very important, but you can't out-exercise a bad diet. 
Now, this is something that I think a lot of people mistakenly believe, is if they go to the gym and if they look fit on the outside, they're gonna, that they're healthy, that their heart is healthy. And then we hear about somebody that's like in their mid-30s and they're jogging and they drop dead of a heart attack. And we go, well, see, it doesn't do any good. It's like, no, that person was probably not eating the best food they probably weren't healthy on the inside even though their muscles were toned and strong. So, some evidence for that is that some autopsies were done on young soldiers th that fought in the Korean War and the Vietnam War. And these were young, fit men that looked healthy on the outside, but when they did the autopsies, the Americans, 80% of these young men had plaques in their arteries already in their early 20s. But the Asians had completely clear arteries. Well, how do we know that had anything to do with food? Maybe it was just genetics. So let's take a look. Is it just genetic? In 1964, the American Journal of Cardiology uh, reported on some more autopsy studies. This is a really interesting graph. Now, these are all, um, well, the blue line is Caucasian Americans. They have the highest rate, MI is myocardial infarction, means heart attack. So the blue line is white Americans. The red line is African Americans. And the green and purple lines at the bottom, the two lines at the bottom, these are Africans that are still living in Africa, Uganda and Nigeria. So three of these are all from the same genetic pool, African-Americans, Africans in Uganda, and Africans in Nigeria. Look at the huge difference. So let's see, where is my, there it is. So, these are the Africans that came to the U.S. It's not as high as what the white Americans are, but look at the Africans that are still in Africa. Almost no sign of myocardial infarction. So this was done in New Orleans in Africa. That's a pretty telling thing. And now let's take a look at what happened in Norway during World War II. Um, Norway was invaded by the Germans and the, in 1941, and the Germans took all their animals, their chickens and their pigs and their goats and their sheep and their cows, for their own use. And so the Norwegians, who had a very high rate of heart disease at the start, and it was increasing, during the war, they were on a vegan diet because that's all they had to eat because they had no more animals. And their heart disease rate plummeted and it stayed down through the war. And then, after the war, they got their animals back and their heart disease rate went right back up. So that was an experiment that no one would ever want to have to repeat. But that was an amazing, I mean, you can look that up. It's, it's amazing. So we can do that without having a war. So the situation is that animal products contain cholesterol and saturated fat, which clog arteries and cause inflammation. Now that, of course, causes inflammation in the cardiac uh, area, 
but it also clogs arteries to every part of our body. It clogs arteries to our brain, can lead to a stroke, it can lead to Alzheimer's disease, it can uh, lead to erectile dysfunction, it can lead to uh, peripheral neuropathy, uh, which is pain and tingling in like your feet. So that's all caused from poor circulation because the cholesterol and saturated fat in the animal products is, is causing that. Plants, on the other hand, are full of antioxidants which protect the lining of the arteries and they reduce inflammation. Now, inflammation is now understood to be an underlying, um, I'm not going to say a cause, it's actually, it underlies all the other diseases. So there's inflammation in cancer, there's inflammation in diabetes, there's inflammation in heart disease. So inflammation is throughout, and boy, was I ever experiencing inflammation when I was in my 20s. Plants are also high in fiber, which removes excess cholesterol. So when people switch from an animal-heavy diet to a plant-based diet, their cholesterol almost invariably drops, and it drops quickly within just you know a few weeks. So heart disease is preventable, but it's also reversible. And this is something that really uh, most people still don't know. And it's really great to know that. It's like even if we have all had unhealthy diets like I did in the beginning of my life, once we make changes, it reverses the process. Dr. Dean Ornish uh, did the groundbreaking work on this about 30 years ago. And this is a picture of arteries. This artery right here shows a, a severe blockage. And this is a cardiac artery, a coronary artery. And after changing the person's changing their diet, that same artery opened back up again. So that's a pretty incredible thing because it's, you know, it's discouraging if you think, well, I've already, you know, you made your bed lie in it. It's like, no, I'm going to, I made my bed, I'm going to make it a different way now. And Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn has done work with um, reversing heart disease with his patients and Dr. Joel Furman, they all have books about it, so I highly recommend that you look at those books and read them. They're extremely readable, and all of these doctors are telling us the same thing. And you all recognize this man. He reversed his own heart disease through a plant-based diet. And he says, all my blood tests are good, my vital signs are good, I feel good, I have more energy. And so he's somebody that we all can look to as saying, well, this is a real person that we know about. It's not just somebody in a book somewhere. And he reversed it with a plant-based diet. Now, this is something that is uh, Alzheimer's disease. We just had an amazing event in Anchorage last Saturday, uh, the VegFest. And was anybody here at that VegFest? Too bad, it was so wonderful. We had some speakers there and that I'll tell you about in a minute, but they were teaching that 90% of Alzheimer's is preventable with lifestyle changes. And that is not something that we have been aware of, I think. At least I haven't been. Their names are Dr. Dean and Aisha Sherzai, and they're the co-director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Program at Loma Linda University. And their book, The Alzheimer's Solution, is out there. It's a wonderful book. 
and we are partnering partnering with them to in something called the Healthy Brain or Healthy Minds Initiative to uh, at work at a community level to have more brain healthy activities and services available to encourage plant-based diets, to encourage more exercise, more stress reduction, more social, healthy social interaction. So if you're interested in that, uh, you can talk to me afterwards and I can tell you how you can be involved as well. So what about cancer? Cancer, I think, nobody wants to have a heart attack, but I, I don't know, are you, are you of the same mind that like cancer is like the worst thing, you don't want to, you don't want to get cancer, right? We've all known that. Well, in an article in a journal called Nutrients, they reported that the association between animal product consumption and cancer is equal to that that links tobacco and cancer. Now, my father died of cancer when he was 53, I was 15, and he'd been a smoker. And it was back in 1966. And in those days, they were just beginning to figure out the link between cancer and tobacco. Nowadays, everybody knows about that. Some people are still going to smoke, but they know about it. But how many people know about the link between animal product consumption and cancer? I don't think there's very many. So we need that word to get out so that people can make informed choices. So, um, Nathan Pritikin did some very interesting research. Now this is, I love this particular research. So they were growing cancer cells in petri dishes, and that's what these little dishes are. And this was prostate cancer. And then they took a group of people and they fed them different diets for the, over the course of a year. And at the end of the year, they drew their blood and they dripped their blood on the cancer cells in the Petri dish. And so they could compare the blood from people eating a vegan diet versus people eating the standard American diet. And guess what they found out? Vegan diet was eight times more powerful in killing cancer cells. That's unbelievable. Now everybody's blood um, killed cancer cells to some extent, but the vegan blood was eight times more powerful. And, and that was after a year of eating a vegan diet. So then they decided, well, let's check this out with growing some breast cancer cells. And we don't want to wait a whole year to see how it works. So they fed women, well, I guess it was just women, um, a plant-based diet just for two weeks. And then they dripped their blood on breast cancer cells. And after only two weeks, their blood was 20% more effective in killing cancer cells. I mean, this is just so amazing. And, you know, we, none of us want to have cancer. None of us want to have parts of our body amputated and burned and poisoned and all that stuff. So the China study by T. Colin Campbell uh, talks about this, and I'm not going to go into it in any depth because it's just going to take a lot of time, but I highly recommend that you take a look at this book. Um, T. Colin Campbell is uh, a bio, uh, nutritional researcher in biochemistry from um, Cornell University. And he did a study that proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that um, animal products cause cancers to grow at every, st 
and also the initiation of cancer. And dairy products were particularly bad. Okay. So, can animal products cause cancer to grow? And whole plant foods, when I say whole plant foods, I'm talking about as compared to processed. So whole plant foods are like, just, you know, you take a recognizable vegetable, fruit, bean, whatever, and eat it in a recognizable form instead of some processed form. So whole plant foods protect ourselves from cancer. So diabetes causes all kinds of health problems. It's not just that you have elevated blood sugar, but you also have cardio. Most people with diabetes die from heart attacks. But it causes cardiovascular disease, kidney failure, blindness, amputations, neuropathy. And so it's just a horrible, miserable disease. And I'm going to let Anna, who, who took my class, um, tell you about her experience. Now, she called me. I didn't know her. I just got a phone call. And she had picked up one of my flyers, like you have a flyer in your uh, chair, that told about a class. And she called me up and, and to talk to me, to tell me she had just been diagnosed with diabetes. And she was working as a social worker in a, di in a um, dialysis center where most of the people getting kidney dialysis had diabetes. So I'm going to let you listen to what she has to say. I mean, I was shocked for days. I walked around in shock. What have I done to myself? What will it mean? Will I end up in a dialysis unit? Well, how much insulin will I have to give myself one day? How could I have done this to myself? Why did I do this to myself? So I was full of a lot of self-blame, and I wasn't hopeful. I just saw this difficult, difficult future. This is what I get for being overweight. I weighed 100, and uh, at that time, I weighed 170 pounds, almost 171 pounds. And I thought, well, I've done this to myself. Now what am I going to do? I got the flyer, and I called you. And I remember getting off the phone, and I told this woman that uh, walked into my office, because I called you from work, and I, and I said, today I have hope. I'm going to get emotional. So I said, today I have hope. And I had felt so hopeless. And, um, and for the first time, I felt hope because you said, well, you can reverse that. And I just thought, reverse? That's not what I was told. I was told, this is forever, and you'll always suffer from this, and you'll have to deal with it. And then you said, no, you don't. Dad, you are plain as day. You're going to have to do it. In other words, you can't go on the fence. You can't, like, one day I'm going to do this, and next day I'm going to do that. If you want something to really work, you're going to have to stick with it. Which is, and it's a very powerful thing. A plant-based diet is very powerful. And one day at work, this fellow I work with said, I work in a dialysis unit. He said, get on the scale. Your pants are getting really loose, and they don't look so good. <laughs> and, I, and, and he's very into fashion. So I said... Well, I think maybe I've lost five pounds, six pounds. He said, get on the scale. So I got on there, and my eyes popped open because I was 20 pounds less. And I had lost that in a period of, I think, three months. It was just, and, then, and, and I wasn't exercising. I wasn't doing anything but eating really good, plant-based, wholesome meals. The pounds just kept coming off. I started going back to my doctor, 
and I was dropping, my, my A1C was dropping, and finally, this April, when I got tested again, um, it had dropped to a normal range. So my doctor said, you don't need to test anymore. Um, you're not diabetic anymore. How do you explain to somebody what it's like when your doctor turns to you and says, you are no longer a diabetic. You have reversed your diabetes. When I have heard people over and over say to me, you can't do that. When you get a diagnosis of diabetes, you have it for the rest of your life. Well, guess what? I don't. <laughs> And it was true about her pants. She's a, just a little five-foot tall lady, and her pants were like getting smaller or bigger and bigger. And you know, she get, would go to the tailor and get them taken in because they were, you know, I just like would go to the thrift store and buy some new pants. But no, she had expensive pants. She would go to the tailor and and get them taken in, taken them in. And after a while, the tailor said, you know, I can't do this anymore because the pockets are touching each other. We can't overlap <laughs> the pockets, you know. <laughs> so anyway, so, and that was a few years ago. She's had an amazingly good life since then. She's moved to Texas since then, but she actually came and was one of the speakers at our VegFest last year. It's great to see her. I had a woman in the class that I just finished teaching this last Tuesday who also reversed her diabetes and she came, I think it was to the third class in the six week series and she said, I just came from my doctor today and she was so happy she'd lost like 35 pounds or something and, and she no longer had diabetes and she was just so happy. So it makes me very, very happy when I can help people to do that. So this is possible for others. So this is Anna now. So I just wanted to show you this. People sometimes say, well, do I have to go that far? Do I have to do 100% plant-based, or can I just do a little bit? So I just want to show you that the answer is you can do less than all the way, but um, this was part of the Adventist Health Study, which was with almost 61,000 participants, and this looks at the body mass index, and this looks at the type 2 diabetes, but... This is different kinds of diets from completely non-vegetarian to completely vegan and with steps along the way, a little more vegan, a little more vegan, a little more vegan, all the way vegan. So you can see that the, the more you give up animal products, uh, the, the more you have a normal body mass index. And the same is true of diabetes. The more you eliminate the animal products, the more you, uh, closer you get to vegan, the better. So, if you only want to have moderate results, make moderate changes. If you want to have big results, make big changes. <coughs> so, a whole foods plant-based diet prevents and reverses cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure. It helps to prevent cancer and for people to survive cancer if they already have it. Diabetes, any kind of inflammatory disease, lung diseases, and more. Now, with Alzheimer's, you can't, pre you can't reverse it when it's in its advanced stages, but early signs of, of a mild cognitive impairment is reversible with a plant-based diet, which I'm sure is a thrill for people when they see themselves going down that path. Okay, what about obesity? The same unhealthy diet that causes disease also causes obesity. And so, a whole foods plant-based diet helps you lose weight without dieting. Now that's one of the things that I am dead set against is dieting, because dieting makes you go crazy in my opinion. 
it made me go crazy. Has anybody ever gone on a diet and you went crazy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you get all focused on food and you just obsessed and blah, 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 and then you lose weight and then you gain it back. Awful. And then you die early. Right. Then you die early. Exactly. So, a whole food plant-based diet, even though we use the term diet, it's the kind of diet that you just means what you eat. It's not a, a diet of counting calories and restriction. So you lose weight without dieting. So we're going to take a look at that. Now this is important, and this graph is also in the cookbook. So you know, you'll have it to look at if you decide to get the book. So this shows the calorie density of a variety of foods. From, it's showing how many calories in a pound of these various foods. So vegetables are, have the fewest calories in a pound, only about 100 calories in a whole pound of vegetables. And then it goes up a little more in fruits, a little more in whole grains, a little more in legumes, which means beans. And then it increases with meat, bread, cheese, cookies, candies, chips. Nuts and seeds have a lot. And then oils and, and fat. This is things like butter, lard, olive oil, coconut oil, any kind of oil that comes in a margarine. 4,000 calories in a pound. A pound is two cups of oil. 4,000 calories. Okay, so now let's look at nutrient density. Now this is how many micronutrients, meaning things like vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytochemicals, and, and those things have, don't have any calories in them. But those are the nutrients that we need to be healthy. So Dr. Joel Furman came up with this chart of how many nutrients there are per calorie. So raw leafy green vegetables have the most, and then other vegetables and beans and fruits and starchy vegetables, whole grains, nuts and seeds, and you get all the way down here, meat and eggs and cheese and, and refined grains, meaning like white sugar, I mean white grain, white flour, and um, refined oils means anything comes in a bottle, and refined sweets, meaning sugar, have basically no nutrients. So now let's look at them together. What do you notice right off the top? What just jumps out at you? Without reading anything. Are they not a mirror image of each other? Yeah. So the foods that have the most nutrients have the fewest calories. And the foods that have the most calories have the fewest nutrients. Now. Where are Americans eating? The top half of the chart or the bottom half of the chart? We're eating at the bottom half of the chart. So that explains why are we fat and sick? Because we're eating the wrong half of the chart. So if we move our dietary choices up to the top of the chart, we get to eat a lot of food, which has a lot of nutrients and very few calories. So it's not about eating less food. It's not about portion control. It's about not eating the foods that are missing the nutrients and eating the foods that have a lot of nutrients. Now nuts and seeds are a special thing. They have good nutri nutrients, but we need to eat them sparingly and consciously and not just shoving nuts in our mouth all the time like I would like to do um, because they're very calorie dense, but at least it's a whole food. Okay, so a whole foods plant-based diet is full of fiber, which fills you up, and, so, and you can eat a lot of food without a lot of calories. 
They're loaded with life-supporting nutrients, and they're protecting our cells from damage. They're reducing inflammation, and they're promoting health. So it's the same thing as filling us up and helping us lose weight is also helping us get our health back. So that just means we eat vegetables, we eat fruits, we eat beans, peas, lentils, we eat whole grains, nuts and seeds in small amounts, and we avoid, and Rachel was saying as she saw these pictures before, all the stuff that we usually eat. <laughs> okay. Now, the question is, isn't this awfully extreme? People have asked me about, doesn't that, the vegan diet just seems so extreme. So let's just take a look. Which is more extreme, to eat these pita pockets with beans and veggies or to take pills for something for the rest of your life? Or which is more extreme, to eat a plate of vegetables and salad or have your chest cut open to do bypass surgery? Which is more extreme, to eat this wrap or have chemo and radiation? Which is more extreme, to eat this plate full of vegetables or to give yourself insulin injections for the rest of your life, daily? And if you don't give yourself insulin injections, you stick yourself at least many times a day to test your blood sugar. Dialysis, which is more extreme? When people talk about extreme, we need to think about what the alternatives are. So, is a salad extreme? Not in my book. How about oatmeal? How about a bowl of bean soup? I don't consider those things extreme. So if this is all really true, why hasn't my doctor told me this? I don't know if you remember any of these old ads. More doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. <laughs> That's true. So Kaiser Permanente again, research shows that plant-based diets are cost-effective, low-risk interventions that may lower blood or body mass index, blood pressure, hemoglobin A1C, which is a measurement of um, blood sugar over a period of time, cholesterol levels. They may also reduce the number of medications needed to treat chronic diseases and lower ischemic heart disease mortality rates. Physicians should consider recommending a plant-based diet to all their patients, especially those with high blood pressure, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, or obesity. That shows that things are changing. These guys are not recommending that you eat smoke camels. Campbells. So not all doctors are on board with this because a lot of doctors don't know about this because they're not trained in nutrition in medical school. They're trained in diagnosis and treatment with pills and procedures. But it, but times they are changing, and there are more and more people. I've had, there's several vegan doctors that are recommending it in Anchorage. Several of my last students came as uh, upon their doctor's recommendation. So times are changing, so that's a good thing. Many people think it's going to be difficult to do this, but it's actually easier and more fun than you think, especially if you do it with a group of other people. And I do teach classes. So these classes talk about all the questions that people have. What about carbs? We talk about the carbs, good, bad, and the ugly. We look at protein myths and protein truths, and we look about the truth about fats.
how to lose weight without going hungry, how animal products contribute to health problems, and how plants protect you from disease. So I teach um, these classes in six-week series, and we have a cooking demo in every class. I give you time-saving tips, and you get to taste everything. So I have a nutrition lesson, followed by a cooking demonstration, followed by um, eating at every class. So my next class just happens to be starting Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, um, in Anchorage, Providence Family Medicine Center, September 18th. And you can, if you are interested, you could register. My, this is my husband, Charlie, by the way. Um, you could register here today, or you can go online to yestolifesolution.com, and that information is in your handout. So, and you're welcome to take more of these if you want to share them with somebody. And we have some pretty colored ones if you'd like to look at them. I also have online classes and offer coaching for people who want um, that information. So, any questions about any of this before we dive into the cooking demo? The coaching, um, I have actually a, a sort of um, in-depth six-month coaching program where I, I talk with people over the phone every two weeks, and I have a, a series of videos for them to watch, and it's, it's a premier program where people really are taken through all, a lot of lifestyle issues and, you know, stress eating and all the, it, it's not just about food, it's really about improving your whole lifestyle. And that's my preferred coaching program. I can work with people on a more of a short-term basis kind of spot here and there, but I really would rather help people to look at the whole thing. Yeah. Okay, well I'm going to cook. Um, I'll get the lights. Okay. Is this course available with our colleagues across the street online? It's Microphone. Um, well, I'm, I'm not going to be able to hold it because I, I I'm using my hands. Okay. Because it's noise from downstairs, it kind yeah. of permeates up. I think that olive oil is very nutritious. No, it's not. It's not. It, I know we have. Uh, we've all heard about the Mediterranean diet, but the Mediterranean diet is healthy in spite of the olive oil, not because of it. The Mediterranean diet was really. Uh, very much based on fresh vegetables and fresh fruits. They did eat some fish. That wasn't all. That also wasn't the healthy part. But olive oil is an extracted food and has had almost all the nutrients taken out of it. So I do not use oil. So um, the first thing I'm going to make is cheesy sauce. Now cheese. 
<laughs> so cheese is one of those things that almost everybody loves, but it's made with, it's like 70 to 80% fat, and that's saturated fat, and that's the kind that clogs your arteries and gives you, you know, cancer and heart disease and Alzheimer's and everything. So, so we're going to still have cheese, but we're going to make it a different way without any cow involved with this process. So you have the recipe there, and I'm not going to make as much as I was going to make because we I don't thought... <laughs> have people here. So I'm going to, um, I wish we had a lavalier mic here. Okay, I'm going to put some water in my pot. I'll make. I'm going to make a double recipe of this, which is still a lot, but not as much as I was going to make. Okay. So I'm putting two cups of water in my pan, and I'm going to put two cups of water in my Vitamix. And, and then I'm going to figure out how much a half a cup is here. Whoops, just dropped a nut. So cashews are going to be what turns this into a creamy, um, I obviously did not come prepared for this. Okay, I'm going to put the cashews in the blender and I'm going to heat up the water separately. So I'm going to put the rest of the ingredients in as well. So nutritional yeast is an amazing product, which um, is grown specifically as a, as a food, and it has a cheesy flavor and is high in all the B vitamins. So I'm going to guess how much two-thirds of this is. Is that brewer's yeast, or is that different? It's yeah. different than oh. brewer's yeast. It is... Um, Brewer's yeast is a byproduct of beer brewing. It's also very nutritious, but it tastes really bad. And back in the 70s, when I first learned about it and I was trying to be healthy, I tried to eat it. Oh, boy, putting it in smoothies. Has anybody had it? You like it? Depends. It's pretty bad, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bad. Well, this is not bad. This okay. is good. Okay. Where do you find that? They sell this in the bulk bins at Fred Meyer and Cars and, uh, yeah, everywhere. So I'm going to... See if I can put in about half of Okay, let's see. This is not how I usually measure. <laughs> okay. So anytime you want something to taste cheesy, you can use nutritional yeast. And the nuts are going to make it creamy, but did you notice there were a lot of nuts? This I put it four cups. Oh, Hello. One of our good buddies that has been in my classes before. All right, so I'm going to add some salt and onion powder and garlic powder. And then we're going to blend this together. And like I say, you've got the recipe right there. You can follow along. Now, cheesy sauce is something that you can use in so many different ways any place that you would like cheese. So for instance, um, anybody like cheese on potatoes? 
Yeah. Make baked potatoes, and instead of putting butter on them and sour cream and all that, you can put cheesy sauce. So I'm also going to want this to look orange because we're used to orange cheese. So I'm going to add some red bell peppers that are roasted red bell peppers in a jar, and that will turn this orange. And by the way, do you know any cows that make orange milk? <laughs> cheese doesn't start out orange, it's colored. I lived in northern New York for a while and all their cheddar cheese was white and I thought, what's the matter with their cheese here? Then, you know, what's the orange? It's like, well, I should have realized what was wrong with all the cheese I was eating somewhere else. I'm also going to add some organic cornstarch, which is going to thicken this because I'm going to blend everything here and then I'm going to add it to my uh, boiling water. And it's going to turn into a sauce. Well, maybe it's getting quieter downstairs and you'll be able to hear me without this. And I do um, use organic only when I'm making, using corn products because almost all corn is genetically modified in the United States and I do not want to have genetically modified corn in my body. So I buy only organic cornstarch, and this brand, Rapunzel, is available at Fred Meyer and other places. Okay, I'm going to make a big noise, and this is just a Vitamix that um, I'm going to blend up all these nuts, and it's going to get creamy. I got this from somebody else and I'd been vegan for seven years before I um, learned to make this so it was I'd been cheeseless for seven years I was so happy when I found out how to make this so now I'm going to pour this into the boiling water which is the reason I did this boiling water thing is because it's going to be a lot faster to come to a boil when you already have some hot water in there I gotta turn it up. It's turned down here. So you can, uh, when this is hot, like it will be in a minute, it's going to be a sauce texture. But then, if you have it left over and you put it in your refrigerator, it gets thick again. And so it's thick, like gravy gets thick in the refrigerator. 
And so if you want it to be a sauce again, you just put it back in the pan, and then you need to stir in a little bit of water to help it to get, um, to be sauce textured again. But you can also use it while it's in that um, thick stage and just use it as a spread. I like spread it on your toast, something like that, or in a sandwich. Now, I also make other cheeses that are sliceable and fermented, and they taste really good. Uh, they're a little more involved, but I do have the recipes for those in the book as well. So my rule when I put that recipe book together is everything has to be healthy and everything has to taste great. I wasn't <laughs> willing to sacrifice either one. And so, you know, we had a lot of experimenting going on. Charlie took all the pictures. It was quite a project. Um, I also got to eat the food. <laughs> yes, and sometimes, you know, he'd say, well, when are we going to have this other thing again? Well, we're not having that again until all the rest of everything in the cookbook is done because I'm not cooking anything that we, haven't all, that we already have in the cookbook. We only are having different things all the time because I'm not going to waste any of my time in the kitchen. Okay, so we now have cheese sauce. Look at that. that so, like... when it was in the blender, it looked brown, and now it's orange. Yeah. So, well, well, is that, that just the... It does, it, it's, it's orangey. It's just oh, the, it, just when you the look, container. Oh. Yeah. I see. Okay. Right, and it, and it wasn't as, as orange as I wanted it to be, so I, that's why I added a little bit more of the um, red bell pepper. So, I always keep a tasting spoon handy. Oh, I did forget something. Needs some lemon juice in it to just brighten it up a little bit, and but I always taste everything because I want to uh, make sure that it, you know tastes the way I want it to. So I'm going to put in two tablespoons of lemon juice, one tablespoon per recipe, and this is a doubled recipe. And if you leave out the lemon juice, you you can definitely taste the difference. Now this doesn't have enough lemon juice to taste lemony. It just tastes a little bit brighter. So this is a very mild flavor, a mild cheddar flavor, but you can put liquid smoke in it, you can put jalapenos in it, you can do all kinds of things to make it have other flavors. Now we'll go for the tasting spoon. Okay. Yes. <laughs> You're going to get it. You'll get to taste it. Normally, with the lemon go in your blender. Yes, I would have normally put it in with in earlier, but I forgot. I would have noticed when I tasted it, though. So now we're going to cook some vegetables. I'm going to show you how I cook without oil. And I'm not going to cook all of these vegetables because I was preparing for 50 people. Oh, that's my fault. <laughs> what about those sprays that you make? <clears throat> the nonstick sprays, are they oil? Well, they, they're made from oil. They actually have oil in them. That's what they... And I do use those occasionally, but I wouldn't use them in... I never would use it for sautéing, and it's not necessary. So I'm just going to put my ingredients in the pan with 
nothing, just a naked pan. And so I'm starting with onions. And onions have a lot of liquid in them. They have a lot of moisture. And I'm also going to add mushrooms. And you know how mushrooms do. They give off a lot of liquid. Now, if I turn the heat up very high, then I could have... Um, it could stick and burn. So I can turn the heat down if I want to, or I can put in about a tablespoon of water, just a little bit of water to keep it from burning. So it kind of depends upon how impatient you are. If you're impatient, you can put a little bit of water in. Now, the old, we're not here to boil the vegetables. It's still, you're still water, it's called water sauteing or dry sauteing. And most of the time, I don't end up putting any water in, but it depends on what my finished product is. If I'm going to make a soup, then I might just go ahead and put a little bit of water in because it's going to end up with water anyway. So I'm going to put some garlic in here. Now I'm not really following a recipe here. I'm just going to add some, a variety of different vegetables, and then I'm going to pour the cheesy sauce over it. So you're going to see what that tastes like. And the reason I'm choosing this particular thing to make is because I wanted you to see how possible it is to cook without oil. Now, every time you put oil in your food, you have just increased the calorie density and you've reduced the nutrient density. So a tablespoon of oil has 120 calories. You remember how much... Uh, pound of vegetables has? 100. 100 calories. So a pound of vegetables and a tablespoon of oil are about the equivalent in terms of calories, but in terms of nutrients, like there's practically no nutrients at all in oil, and there's a zillion nutrients in the vegetables. So I don't really want to um, eat empty calories. I mean, everybody knows that they don't want to eat sugar because it's empty calories. Well, oil has way more empty calories than sugar has. So let's avoid both of them. That doesn't mean that we can't put some fat in things, like I added nuts to this, which is a fat, but not a lot of nuts. I only put in a little bit, like a fourth of a cup to a, one recipe. Okay, so this is starting to give off a little bit of moisture and I'm going to add some bell peppers to it and you can add whatever kind of vegetables you want so I am also going to add some broccoli to it and I'm going to show you something that you can do that you might not realize, and that is that if you don't really want to chop up a bunch of fresh vegetables, it's time to add a little water. It's getting a little sticking at the bottom. Um, but you see, it wasn't very much water, just a little bit. You can use frozen vegetables to your advantage because people sometimes say, oh, it's so hard to... You know, it's so time-consuming to chop up all these fresh vegetables. You have to wash them and peel them or whatever and chop them. 
And so I'm going to show you that you can, I use, often use part frozen vegetables and part fresh vegetables. So I've got these fresh onions, mushrooms, and bell peppers, but I'm going to use frozen broccoli because it's really easy to buy wonderful organic frozen broccoli at Costco in big bags, and they, then they're divided up into one-pound bags inside. And the key to having good frozen vegetables is to let them thaw before you put them in your recipe because frozen vegetables are already cooked. So all they need to do is get warmed up. And so if you put your frozen vegetables in the pan to cook, like the instructions tell you to do, then they get mushy and they don't taste that great. So just let them thaw first. Is your hand getting tired? That's what I thought. See, he does all kinds of things for me. In my cooking classes, he does all the dishes. <laughs> he does all the paperwork. He keeps track of the registrations. He's a great partner. Okay, so um, where was I? Oh, the frozen vegetables. Yes, so when you add the frozen vegetables, all you want to do is just let them heat through. They don't need more cooking. So then they'll, they'll be tasty, as opposed to just putting them in and then boiling them. Then they'll be mushy. How long should you wait to defrost? Pardon? How, how, long do you defrost? how long do I defrost them? Well, if I'm thinking about it ahead of time, I might just take them out and leave them in the refrigerator for a, a day or two. And if I don't think about it ahead of time, I'll just leave them on the counter um, and for a little while. But I, I like to make my life easy, and so I usually make things up ahead. I, I rarely just cook a meal and eat it right then. I'll make big pots of soup or, or lasagna or whatever I make, and I make a lot in advance, and then I'm going to have that to eat for a while, and, and then I make enough to freeze some too, so that I always have some that I can take out easily. Um, so for me to think ahead and think, hmm, I think I'm going to make a big pot of whatever, so I'm going to take those frozen vegetables out All right, and then just let them thaw. And so if you just kind of have in your consciousness, but if it's like 5 o'clock at night and you're ready to make dinner, then, you know, I, you can run them under, you know, kind of break them apart and run them under some warm water, but just enough to just separate them so that they can uh, not get mushy. Okay, so now I'm going to add the cheesy sauce to this before I put in the broccoli. Yeah, let's just put it all in there. You'll get lots to eat. Delisa, do you use more or less salt in your cooking? Salt. Do I use it? No, but how much? Like, do you find do you find you use more of it in your cooking, or the same amount? Is there any more than what? Then you maybe because um, we usually have a most people have a salty diet, so it like. I, do you find I it try to reduce the salt. Um, I don't eliminate it, but okay. I do. My taste buds have changed over time, uh -huh. and I do reduce the amount of salt that I'm going to eat. Okay. What kind of salt do you use? Um, I use 
this Redmond Real Salt. It's it's a all natural sea salt, and you can see you're welcome to look at it. I they sell it at Fred Meyer. Um, it has all different colors in it, and the, those are the minerals. So I'm going to add the broccoli to this now. So it came in these bags that were frozen, and I thawed them out yesterday, and, and I actually cut them into some smaller pieces so that we wouldn't have great big chunks. So I'm putting cold broccoli into this sauce and it's going to get warm very quickly because the sauce was hot. So then you could serve this over brown rice or quinoa or over a baked potato or over a sweet potato would be delicious. Today you're just going to have it on a plate. And for those of you who like your food to taste spicy, um, I brought some hot sauce that you could add onto it because this is not spicy. I wanted you to see what it's like just plain. Um, I think they'll put... I want you to have plenty of the cheesy sauce on it too, so that you can taste the cheesy sauce and not just a lot of vegetables. Okay. Okay. Any questions about any of this? So, um, if you had leftovers, you could just put in the refrigerator the cheesy sauce that, that yeah. you said, like gravy. Yep. Would and you I free? always make a lot. Oh, you do. Oh. Of everything. Uh -huh. <laughs> There's only two of us at home. Although we had a, a house full over the weekend went for VegFest because we host the speakers. Um, and they all loved my cooking and they all ate a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yes, now cheesy sauce doesn't freeze well. That's, oh. So I wouldn't freeze the cheesy sauce, but I would a lot of other things, other soups and casseroles and things like Bean dips freeze really well. And in my cookbook, I tell you on there if it freezes well or if it doesn't freeze well. Um, so, okay. One so, other question. Do you ever use a crock pot? I do once in a while, but not very often. It's a great idea. I just don't often do it. But, it, you know, sometimes I do. I make, um, yeah, I don't very often. It's really good. You want some? <laughs>